The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, September 6, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Trump administration straying dangerously close to an almost mandatory reference to dim bulbs because they have reversed an Obama administration ruling about LED light bulbs. You've probably heard about this, and even if you hadn't heard the specifics, as soon as I started talking about what the Trump administration's stance was on an Obama administration rule, you knew where this thing was going. If the Obama administration decided that a sitting president should not step in dog shit, the Trump administration would be gleefully leaping into the caca tomorrow morning. But with the bulbs, I have noticed something specific. It is contained in this phrase as mentioned by Jeff Brady on NPR. You see the pear-shaped LEDs everywhere now. Or as the New York Times reported of the Trump super genius smart plan, quote, the proposed changes would eliminate requirements that effectively meant that most light bulbs sold in the United States, not only the familiar pear-shaped ones, but several other styles as well, must be either LEDs or fluorescent to meet new efficiency standards. Pear-shaped light bulbs. I had never heard of pear-shaped light bulbs before this week. Now I only hear of pear-shaped light bulbs. I always knew these pear-shaped light bulbs as light bulb-shaped light bulbs. Like a stupid dog in a cartoon gets a bright idea. Ding! Light bulb above his head. What's the shape? I would not say pear-shaped. I would say light bulb-shaped. Which got me to thinking. What are more common, pears or light bulbs? Everyone right now has light bulbs in their home probably a few. Most people do not have a pair in their house. Last year, per capita, American consumption of pairs was 2.75 pounds per person. That is five pairs. You know, pairs are half a pound each. I I researched this. All right, do the math. 330 million Americans. We got about one and a half billion pairs. Guess how many light bulbs were sold last year? Also about one and a half billion. You know, it's funny. I've long had this thought about uteruses. Yes, this is Mike Discusses Uteruses. Uteruses, uteri, are often described as pear-shaped organs. But I always wondered, shouldn't the pear be described as a uterus-shaped fruit? Roughly half of humanity has a uterus. Half of humanity isn't holding a pear right now. And this has been womb talk. I don't think we could change the way we talk about light bulbs but I do hope we could change the way we think about them. I hope in some small way I may have inspired you in thought or insight, a flash of consciousness or a great idea. Bing! Let us call it a flaming pair above your brain moment. So, if the top of the show today was the news in the spiel, it's the weather. Dorian! It's a category one, but also in one category that makes it seem much more dangerous. But first, Benjamin Applebaum reports on economics for the New York Times. Who doesn't like economists? Well, he doesn't. I mean, I suppose he likes some personally, but Applebaum thinks that economists have gotten a little too powerful. The Times science correspondents don't dislike scientists. The Times medical correspondents don't distrust doctors. Yet here's their economics writer casting aspersions on economists. Hmm, why? Could it be that they deserve it? We will find out as Benjamin Applebaum comes by to discuss his new book, The Economist's Hour, How the False Profits of Free Markets Fractured Our Society. (laughs) 
There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. The name of the book is The Economist's Hour, False Prophets, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. And the interesting thing about this book, written by the New York Times' Benjamin Applebaum, is that false prophets part. I thought that the educated class, the people who who kowtow to scholarship and academia and knowledge will look at an economist and say, well, those are the smart guys. Let's listen to them. It turns out not so much. There has been a lot of false prophecy within this discipline. Hello, Mr. Applebaum. Welcome. Hey. Why did you think that the record needed to be corrected uh, as regards our understanding of economists? you think they were given too much credence and credibility over the years? Yeah, I mean, I think there was this quiet, really important revolution that began about half a century ago where economists suddenly become enormously influential in shaping public policy in this country. Yeah. Has all sorts of big consequences across our lives. They end military conscription. They change, you know, the way that we tax. They change the way we spend money. They change our lives in really big and profound ways. And they told us that they knew what we were doing and that we were going to get good things out of it. And then it turns out that uh, it all went wrong. So I think it's time for a reckoning. So over, what, a 20-year period, the federal government goes from employing 2,000 to 6,000 economists. Yeah. And they, all for, all for the worst? I mean, here's the thing. Here's yeah. the thing. The people arguing against eggheads and academics are almost always on the wrong side of history, but not with economists. It's better just to have like a feel for if uh, the, the, the plants and the manufacturing centers are churning out product that people like. I think economists can be enormously valuable and helpful, but I think that we went a little too far. I think that they didn't know their own limits and nobody imposed limits on them. There was this sense that they were unfailingly correct in their advice, that we should embrace markets, get government out of the way, trust in markets to allocate resources to make people prosper, and it didn't work. We sort of forgot some of the basics. We corrected problems and new ones arose, and we didn't correct the new problems. Okay, so in the time before economists in America, every other country could tell this story too, there was a recession or a depression or a panic. I don't, I don't know the exact stat. It seemed like about every two or three years, just a litany of them. Then there was the Great Depression. And by the way, at that point, where was economics? FDR was denigrating John Maynard Keynes. It wasn't, it had been established for a while, but it wasn't that respected a position. Um, After the Great Depression, though, our economic house got to be more and more in order. And I think that this generally correlated with the rise of economists and uh, economics as a theory. Am I wrong about that? During the post-war period, John Maynard Keynes in particular and many of his disciples start to talk about the idea of macroeconomic management, the idea that we can intelligently control the ups and downs of the economy, that when a recession hits, we can do something about it. That's a new idea in the world. And they start showing that that is indeed possible. 
and government starts listening. So where did it go wrong or overboard? When was the time when we began listening to economists too much? So what really happens in this period that I'm calling this this revolution that begins in the late 60s and early 70s is that economists begin to say, listen, we can let markets handle it all. You know, we don't need to regulate the economy. We don't need to uh, shift resources from the rich to the poor. We don't need to invest in the future. We just need to let the private sector take care of all of that stuff. That's where things start to go wrong. When you sort of take a good idea, which is let's think about the economy, let's measure it, let's control it, and you say, you know, let's just go all out and and trust that the market will sort itself out. That's not how markets work. It's never been how markets work. It would have been obvious to people in earlier eras that markets are man-made creations, that we need to control them and write the rules. Uh, In the mid-century, people sort of lost track of that and said, no, markets are natural forces and they can be trusted, uh, and that's where things start to go really wrong. At that time, right about that time, Nixon takes us off the gold standard. And as you write in the book, well, as the impression I got from what you wrote in the book, you can't, I don't think you could blame an economist since there were economists on staff saying exactly opposite things. Well, I think you can blame an economist because it was the idea of a specific economist to do that. Listen, was economists- that Schultz or Burns? Well, Schultz is the treasury secretary at yeah. the time. He's the guy who takes us off, but he really was an acolyte of Milton Friedman. It's really Milton Friedman's idea that you should let markets set exchange rates, determine the, the relative prices of national currencies. But in the Nixon administration, there were people who didn't want that, economists who didn't want that. There absolutely were economists of an older cut who said, basically, you're going too far. Uh, but they are fading in influence, and it's this new generation of economists who want market forces to predominate who really begin to gain power in that period. Is your truck, I love using that word, is your truck, Mr. Applebaum, really with economists or the Friedman Chicago Free Market School of Economists? Because it seems to me that for every one of them, there's someone, often from Cambridge, pushing back. I think that what you find is as you move forward through the 70s and into the 80s and 90s, the economics profession in the United States starts to look awfully homogenous. Yeah. The idea of people who are pushing back, they, those people really get sidelined. You right. get, you know, some of the most prominent liberal economists in America railing against labor unions, uh, saying that minimum wage laws should be abolished. Uh, favoring free trade deals without any regard to compensation for displaced workers, saying that financial regulation is beside the point, arguing that the era of big government is over. It's really hard to tell the difference between which ones are supposed to be the liberal economists and which ones are supposed to be the conservative economists. They have differences. I don't want to minimize it. But what was much more consequential was the stuff that they agreed about. This is why... As you quote in your book, George Will writes in 1991, the Cold War is over and the University of Chicago won. Great line. It is a good line. He's good. But he also, he also, (laughs) I've interviewed him, he hates the New Deal so much that he's against the Eagle logo that was part of the New Deal. So this is a self-defined patriot who hates Eagle logos because it's New Deal related. This guy is a Friedman free market accolade to a fairly well, and I don't think he's grappled and they've grappled with how wrong they've been so often especially as the last 20 years has shown us. For sure not. Benjamin Franklin hated the eagle too, so I'm not sure that's the right well, marker the of American patriotism. Bird, right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, But that aside, yeah, I mean, listen, there was this sense that they had, and I think things got much worse with the end of the Cold War because one thing it's important to remember is part of what the United States was doing in the mid-century was contrasting itself with the Soviet Union and saying capitalism is a better system, and the measure of that is that it is improving the lives of everyone top of the pyramid to the bottom. And therefore, there was this intense awareness that you needed to show that ordinary lives were getting better. The end of the Cold War comes, and it's a natural experiment comparing, you know, capitalism 
socialism and communism, it seems pretty clear which was the better set of ideas. But the conclusion that's drawn from it in a lot of ways is basically, let's purify capitalism. We don't need to try anymore to help everyone. Uh, you get, a, you get a, a turn to the right, basically. All of a sudden, there's no more competition in the marketplace of ideas. Capitalism becomes a monopolist, and like every monopolist, it gets fat and happy, and it's really hard to get anybody to focus on the problem. I don't think, I think it's inaccurate to portray the consensus of economists as, say, an environmental reporter might portray the consensus among climate change uh, scientists. I think there was much less of a consensus. And also, it's all it, it's harder to have solid figures when you're dealing with a theory like uh, economics. Absolutely. I, I certainly wouldn't draw the comparison that you just described. I think that would go too far. Right. But it is important to say, you know, that it is the Kennedy administration that starts us down the path of cutting taxes for the rich. It is the but Carter— from Ninety-four percent, right? Right, absolutely. But it is the <laughs> that Carter. That seems too high. Ninety-four percent. Well, if the effective rate was about fifty-one percent, so yeah. at at its peak. The wealthy in this country were paying slightly more than half of their income in taxes. The stated tax rate isn't actually the amount that you end up paying out of your paycheck. Right. Where we peak is about 51%. It's the Carter administration that starts deregulating the economy. And that, too, had value. There were reasons to say, okay, we need commercial aviation to be competitive. We need trucking to be competitive. The point is not that these were all bad things. Many of them were productive to a point. But the point is that they were a bipartisan project. It is it is not well remembered now, but it was Ted Kennedy who led the charge to deregulate the airline industry. It's the Clinton administration that declares that the era of big government is over. Yeah. Uh, it's the Obama administration that allows the airline industry to consolidate from eight to four. You know, across all of these issues, we have seen a bipartisan consensus, not to say they agreed about everything, not to say there weren't some voices out on the sidelines saying, hey, what the hell are you doing? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's really important not to portray this as partisan because it wasn't. But I also think it's important not to portray a thing like tax cuts without saying, well, from what to what? When it's George Bush pretending that 38% is a confiscatory rate, that's a little ridiculous. When it's a stated rate of 94%, and by the way, even if the actual rate was 51. The fact that there's such a giant gap is in and of itself a problem. I would think that I would think that most economists and you would agree that some tinkering needed to go on with the tax code during the Kennedy administration. Absolutely. And and again, my point is that the this revolution began as an effort to fix a set of real problems. Yes. It needed to happen. This is not an argument for going back to where we were in 1960, A, because we don't have that economy anymore, and B, because the solutions they had at the time, we've learned, were broken in very important respects. But it is the case that there are no Democrats who've been running on a platform of raising the top income tax rate even as high as 50%. Yeah. What we got was a, a debate, a national debate about where we should be between 30 and 40 that's the boundaries of the our Democrats political debate. Lost. <laughs> and the Democrats lost, right. Yeah, but yeah. even, you, you want to say the Democrats were different than the Republicans? Sure, they wanted 40. I mean, that's still a level of taxation that is very different than what was prevailing in an earlier era. I have. Th- I was thinking of a couple analogies as I read the book. One was during LBJ, Democrat, how he assembled the best and the brightest, which was be- which became an ironic phrase to describe the technocrats that were managing and mismanaging the Vietnam War. There weren't evil people, but there was a consensus among them that there was a technical way to win the war. And Bob McNamara, with his background as essentially a number of crunchers in the auto industry, and that was wrong. Something like that seems to have been going on with economics. And the other analogy I was thinking of is baseball and moneyball. I think the statistical revolution is eye-opening and fantastic, but if you only let number crunchers run your front office, you're going to miss things. 
I think those are both great analogies. And the Johnson one's particularly interesting to me because Johnson really turns to economists in a lot of ways. So he hires McNamara to bring, you know, at the time you've got the Army and the Air Force simultaneously uh, building missiles for the exact same purpose. Everyone agrees we only need one, but neither of them will stand down. They create a budget process for the first time administered by economists to come in and say, basically, please tell us what you're spending money on and how well it's working. And this is revolutionary. The chairman of the Armed Forces of the Armed Services Committee in the House literally gives them this thank you note that says, I've never seen anything like this in all my years in Congress. This was a budget. That was an innovation at the time that economists brought into the government. Which is literally written in ink. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. right. And (laughs) it's an amazing idea, right? But that was a revolution. So Johnson is leaning on these experts and saying, please help me. They begin to to analyze the costs and benefits of federal policies. The Johnson administration, that's the first time the federal government ever sits there and says, all right, we have a regulation. What, What good would it do? What bad would it do? Let's weigh those things on a scale. Let's figure this out. So he's leaning on these experts in a lot of ways that are good. But as you say, if you have too much confidence in them, and boy, did they have too much confidence in themselves, things start to go wrong. Right. If you don't build in the checks. Pretty much every generation of economists, as far as I can tell, has this moment when they're like, we have solved the problem of recessions. There will no longer be recessions. We're great. We did it. And you get a moment like that in the mid-60s in the U.S. They put Keynes on the cover of Time magazine and they declare that, you know, we've figured out the secret of growth and it's just going to be good times from here on out. Uh, And the truth is they were on a sugar high and it all came crashing down. We have been going 10, a little more than 10 years without a recession. That's a post-war record. In part because growth has been pretty lousy, right? I mean, we've had sort of lackluster yeah, economic if you activity. Have, if you have a very slow recovery, maybe it's a drawn-out recovery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, was, was Carter wrong to deregulate the airlines? I think not. I think, you know, this is a great example of, of you know, in, in the mid-century, uh, for those who are too young to remember the experience, as I myself am, uh, you know, the airlines were this heavily regulated elite experience. It was nice. You sat in a comfortable seat. You ate on China, but it was expensive. Americans flew much less often than they do today. Uh, and Carter came in and basically said, we're going to democratize this experience. We're going to let people come in and compete. And I don't think that was a problem at all. It's what Americans clearly wanted. They've been voting with their feet ever since. Yeah. The problems there and were the airline twofold. you talk about in California only that was able to escape federal regulation yeah. kind of showed the way about how it could be. Yeah. Well, it gave a glimpse into the future that'll be a lot cheaper, but also like a bus in the sky. Totally. And yeah. then Southwest in Texas comes in. They copy the California airline, same model. Uh, and, and so we sort of knew what we were getting into. Uh, there were two problems. The first is the workers got screwed. The government wasn't at all interested. It, it literally, you know, the guy that Carter brought in to do this, this eccentric economist named Alfred Kahn, walks around in his socks, makes his uh, staffers go swimming with him in the pool every day, uh, sings in light operas whenever he can. He's a crazy guy, but brilliant. And and he said explicitly that they were there to take money out of the pockets of workers and give it to consumers. Well, that's great, except if you do it across the whole economy, everybody's a worker, and everybody ended up losing, and the government just lost interest in making sure that the workers were doing okay. It busted the unions. uh, It got rid of minimum wage laws for all intents and purposes. It stopped trying to enforce workplace safety standards in many of these industries. That wasn't good. Well, the, uh, the unions yeah. are still good in air, airlines, still strong in the airline industry. It To me, it always comes down to from what to what. Like, you can't 
just give a blanket solution where deregulation is the solution. What are the regulations? Some are too onerous. Some aren't. Glass-Steagall, to this day, there might have been some banking regulations that were so out of date they needed reforming. And then a couple of the other ones about, you know, giving rise to investment banks. Well, maybe those were the regulations you should have looked at. And the regulation they shouldn't have gotten rid of was antitrust regulation. Because if you're saying we're going to open up the floodgates and let the market be competitive, the one thing you need to prevent is the biggest airline eating all the smaller ones and saying basically, yeah, it's a free market. Anybody's welcome to fly, but we're the only ones who can. We own all the gates at the big airports. That's where we are now. We've got four airlines. You go online, you shop for a flight. They all have the same price. That's not a coincidence. They are not competing with each other. That's the problem is that we didn't we didn't keep enough regulation in place to make the market competitive. This isn't about replacing markets. It's about the fact that a market is a human construct and it needs good rules. All right. Benjamin Applebaum is the author of The Economist's Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. And now the spiel. As Dorian blows past the Carolinas after really laying waste to parts of the Bahamas, it creates its own atmosphere. And it's hard to miss that much of the energy being generated by the storm comes from newsrooms. The Washington Post described Dorian this way. Dorian is a catastrophic and borderline cataclysmic storm with winds over 180 miles per hour clocked this afternoon by the National Hurricane Center. Only it wasn't. Or it wasn't any more catastrophic or cataclysmic or apocalyptic than hurricanes usually are. This is the theme I keep coming back to in my mind on this show because I notice again and again and again our tendency to catastrophize the usual. Now, with hurricanes, it's hard to point to it and say you've catastrophized it, right? Because it's a, it's a catastrophe. They're definitely catastrophic for the areas they hit, for the people they kill. And the Bahamas was certainly hit bad. But all my life, we have had hurricanes. And my life began before the current trends of global warming. Those showed up early 80s, maybe 1980, right? So I looked at all the Atlantic hurricanes ever to hit the United States going back to the 70s when my life began. So 1974, Hurricane Fifi, when you hate to be killed by Hurricane Fifi, it did kill 8,000 people, mostly Hondurans. Horrible, but we got to say it's not global warming related. There was no global warming then. 1975, Eloise, Category 3, killed 80, including 17 in the U.S., Anita was a Category 5 hurricane in 1977, the most severe. 1979, David, 2,000 died, mostly in the Dominican Republic. And in 1980, again, before global warming started to really trend up on land and on sea, or trend up at all, Hurricane Allen, 269 deaths, mostly Haiti, some in America. At that point, we do begin to see global warming, so I ended my survey of the decade. All right, let's compare that to the last 10 years when global warming is undeniable. And yes, we do have slightly worse results. There were 15 annual recorded storms during the 70s. In this decade, there have been 19. There were three Category 5s in the 70s, the worst. There were five Category 5s this decade. And there's ample evidence that the wetness of the ocean contributed, for instance, to Harvey setting flooding records in Houston. But the phenomenon has not increased by an order of magnitude. In fact, we recently lived through an 11-year stretch ending in 2017 without a major hurricane to hit the U.S. 
But as of late, we have had a few more, but it's not been a ridiculous uptick. It's just been a ridiculous uptick in hurricane hype. In the 1970s, there was the evening news on TV, there was the newspaper, and there was local radio. But that news on TV did not include cable news. That radio did not include all news radio. So the message was clear. Basically, there's a storm of brewing, board the windows, you may want to consider getting out of town. Now, the message is that times, I don't know, about 10,000, relentless, always the end of the world. As I've said on the show in past years, with past hurricanes, They were damaging, but not catastrophic. There are almost no incentives to downplay a storm's danger and every incentive towards hype. There's the ratings incentive. There's the honest imperative to tell people in its path how bad it can get. But there's also the meteorological incentive to educate the public, quote unquote, educate the public by linking every hurricane to climate change. Of course, when this is done, good journalists say now, To be clear, no one hurricane can be directly linked to climate change. And then they all but directly link every hurricane to climate change. Of course, this needs to be understood within the context of climate change. Writing in the New York Times, David Leonhardt argues, the frequency of severe hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean has roughly doubled over the last two decades, and climate change appears to be the reason. Yet much of the conversation about Hurricane Dorian, including most media coverage, ignores climate change. I gotta say, not my circles, not in my spinning gyres. The Washington Post writes, Hurricane Dorian is taking extreme to the next level. With sustained winds of 185 miles per hour Sunday afternoon and evening, the Category 5 storm has risen to the top of the charts among the most powerful tropical systems ever observed in the Atlantic Ocean. But now let me read you the Wikipedia entry on Allen, which I talked about, the 1980 pre-spike in surface and sea temperature hurricane. Allen is the only hurricane in recorded history of the Atlantic Basin to achieve sustained winds of 190 miles an hour, thus making it the strongest Atlantic hurricane by wind speed. It notes that uh, Hurricane Patricia also attained those speeds in the Western Hemisphere. What I'm not saying is that global warming is fake. I'm not saying that global warming doesn't in some ways make hurricanes worse. It seems too, like in the wetness of hurricanes, because of the wetness of the ocean, maybe, maybe the amount of energy, it seems like they still have to study that more. But every phenomena around hurricanes in recent years is seen as a confirming data point, when really the data is a lot more scattershot than that. And the crazy thing is that this is the phenomena that most moves public opinion. It really works. People's minds are really changed by the presence of hurricanes and bad hurricanes. And I do want public opinion moved. I guess if it's by the false notion that we've never seen hurricanes like this before, I should find that acceptable. There's enough to the notion that I can't say it's a lie. There seems to be elements of climate change affecting many of the hurricanes. But there's something about it that doesn't sit well with me. We have weather hype. We have cable news scares. We have devastating weather. But it's the kind of devastating weather that we've always had that we've been more able to, in the past, contextualize properly. We have hurricanes now. We had hurricanes then. They're largely the same, but they're treated as if they're not. We catastrophize the usual. I guess in this case, it's only natural to catastrophize the usual, as hurricanes are naturally occurring catastrophes. (music) 
And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname. And this is Pierre's last show. He has been an enthusiastic, fun, capable presence in all our lives here at Slate. And I want you to know how he got the job. So you apply, you get an interview. If something about you piques my interest, and Pierre certainly seemed enthusiastic, fun, and capable. But then we assign an audio test. We ask interviewees, potential candidates, to cut a two-way, which is industry speak for me interviewing a guest and maybe throw some fades, some, some fancy uh, music here and there. But what I did was I gave all the candidates some raw tape of an interview I did with the owner of a Chinese restaurant. So at issue was the fact that Donald Trump was reported to have eaten a dish called crispy sweet beef which didn't seem like any actual Chinese dish anyone had ever heard of. So I called Shunli Palace. This was the cut of that interview that Pierre put together. Now to confirm my suspicion, I called Shunli Palace, perhaps the first fine dining Chinese restaurant in New York City, delicious. Good afternoon, Shunli Palace. Hello, do you have crispy beef? Yes, we do a dry shred crispy beef or crispy orange beef. Wait, okay, so the crispy beef, is that sweet? Yes. The orange beef is crispy and sweet. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you. And then I came out of the tape, and I pointed out that, see, see what she's saying there? There's crispy beef, and there's sweet beef, but the beef that's crispy ain't sweet, and the beef that's sweet ain't crispy. It was all a grand plan for the Trump administration to hide the fact that he was eating the beef that is widely called, almost everywhere, orange beef. He didn't want to be seen eating the orange beef. But the thing is, to get there, that was a pretty, pretty quick trip to Shunli. It was, in real life, like a five or six minute conversation. And there were, we went round and round. I had clarifications. I had follow-ups. She started talking about things that were spicy. I didn't need the spicy stuff. So what was presented before you was the purest distillation of what the listener needed to know. And Pierre got that. And Pierre got the job, and now he's got our thanks as he leaves. Which also means there's an opening for Gist Producer. Go to slate.com slash jobs. If you make it through the application process, you may be asked to edit some examples of my ordering dinner. The Gist. Peerless, as always, but now also Pierreless. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.